0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface, I'm Jarrett Fuller and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week I talk with the designer, educator, and writer James Goggin. James runs his own design studio, Practice, is on the faculty in RISD's graphic design department and occasionally writes about design typography and branding for uh, various design publications. He previously was the Director of Design, Publishing, and New Media at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago and has taught at institutions around the world, including WorkPlots and ECAL. In this episode, James and I talk about where he first got interested in design. We talk about building a studio that intentionally works across mediums and disciplines, as well as the value of, of writing in his design practice. We also look at how to close the gap between theory and practice, especially in a classroom setting. And we have a, what I think is a really interesting discussion on the lecture format and how he's interested in finding new ways to talk about design in public, in front of audiences, which is something that I thought was just uh, completely fascinating. I've been a fan of James' work for years now and just really admire his practice and how he thinks. I've wanted to have him on the show for a while and so, was so glad that we finally got to have this conversation. I just love talking with him and hope that you enjoy my conversation with James Goggin. As I was kind of preparing for this and, and researching you, I watched a talk that you gave, I guess it was earlier this year at RIT, yeah, uh, and you were talking about your background there, and you said something interesting that is kind of where I want to start, is that you moved around as a kid, kind of all around the world, but when you were ready to go to school, you kind of already knew that you wanted to be a designer, or that you had this interest in design. And I I kind of wanted to start there with where that interest came from, or what was, what was that thing that kind of let you know that this was the thing you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I've often thought about this. I mean, I kind of, I think part of it was uh, an awareness of just, I think, I mean, it all kind of started with typography. There was always an awareness. I remember being obsessed with, uh, even as a kid, I mean, I grew up, lived in Australia for the first 10 years of my life. My parents are Australian. And I used to even then remember, you know, moving between different states in Australia, noticing the number plates, the license plates, yeah. and just sort of being fascinated by it, depending on where you were, they changed color or they were slightly different letter forms. Yep. And that was sort of one thing that I was always just looking <laughs> at type, I suppose just vernacular type. Okay. Um, but then, I mean, the more I've thought about it over the years, I've been thinking about, you know, where do I trace this back to? I, I sort of, uh, I remember high school picking up Neville Brody, um, the graphic language of Neville Brody by yep. John Worsencroft. And that was sort of one of those moments where I, 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 there's a book about, you know, all, all of these, I seem interested in, in its design uh, but I think one pivotal moment that I really it seems you know the, the more I thought about over the years is the opening ceremony of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics Oh, interesting. and I was nine at the time and I was living in my parent my family was living in Western Australia in Perth so the last two years of us living in Australia before we then moved to Sweden and Denmark we kind of moved every two years for my dad's company uh, he worked for a Swedish company after that but At that moment, I mean, only years later I realised that it was Deborah Sussman and her incredible colour palette and stencil typography and you know massive kind of environmental blocks and uh, structures. Mm -hmm. All they were all visible in this uh, old colosseum in LA, and somehow it was that it was there was hip hop. I was really into Mm -hmm. graffiti and hip hop uh, as as much as one could find bits and pieces of that in Western Australia Mm and the early eighties and, um, there was <coughs> dancing and there were jet packs. And right. I, how all of this, I was like, this kind of blew my mind as a kid, uh, in the early eighties in Australia. Of yeah. Something incredible is going on that somehow connecting all the things that I'm starting, like I'm starting to get interested in. And the one thing that seemed to be tying it all together were these really super fresh fluoro graphics that I could just spot on the television screen. Right. And that was sort of a moment like I want to I want to be involved in things that that kind of tie all of that stuff together in some way and that ultimately is how I've come to understand graphic design as this kind of discipline that connects lots of other interesting disciplines yeah that
0: I mean that's so in, I've told this story to other people that I've talked to but I love hearing that kind of recognizing um, kind of license plate numbers and how those numbers are different because that was very much my experience I've I've a very vivid memory of uh, sitting in the shopping cart while my mom was grocery shopping and noticing that the two on one price tag was a different shape than the two on another one. And yeah. being like three, four, five years old and asking her, why do these look different? Mm. And you know, I don't really remember what she said, but that's always kind of been this thing. And, and I was noticing it everywhere at this kind of early age. And then it sounds like you. It wasn't until years later that I kind of realized that, oh, this is this thing that people actually do. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And so I when you I want to come back in a little bit to to what you were talking about about kind of graphic design connecting cuz I think that's a really interesting point, but I want to just kind of finish this part of the story a little bit. So when you kind of went to school to study design, did you were you how aware of of the profession were you? Did you know kind of what types of things you were interested in as a designer? Were you aware that kind of graphic design, what a graphic designer does? Like, what was that knowledge like?
1: I was gradually, um, I mean, the last the last two years before I then moved to London to actually properly study graphic design at Ravensbourne College okay. of Design and Communication, which was then in South London, then very much kind of a, still sort of a in the Basel tradition of right. hardcore kind of typography. <laughs> um, but the last two years of high school, I was living in Wales in Cardiff, and I found like there's an incredible record shop called Spillers Records in in uh, Cardiff and I would buy records from there And there was a I can't even remember the name, but there was a small art bookshop And in the small art book and I would just said I didn't I was sort of slowly starting to Realize that I could walk into interesting art bookshops or interesting galleries that As a kid you kind of feel like I'm probably not allowed to go in there right. and, Yeah And you, I went in there and then I picked up this incredible looking magazine that was really messy and it was Ray Gun. Oh and so I started just going in there every month and buying ray gun. Yeah, and then somehow miraculously this shop also sold emigre And wow. and I picked up and it was like this really big thing like, you know, what's this brightly colored? Yeah big publication and and it was really expensive like it was <laughs> I don't know how much it was I mean, it was like eight pounds or something then but that was sort of a bit pricey for me. Yeah I, I was like, I gotta have this like well, I don't know what this is and there's a lot of writing in it like it seems like it's graphic design but there's lots of writing yeah. so it was sort of uh definitely Emigrate, ray Gunn, uh 4ad oh, yeah. uh a lot of the kind of hip-hop stuff that i was into but definitely getting a sense that oh certain labels have a particular visual sensibility and again occurring to you that you know someone's designing this who's who, yeah. who gets who gets credited on this you know there's oh there's vaughn oliver there's another guy called chris big and they are these super interesting photographers like Simon Labalestia, uh, I think his name is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so you start to understand that, okay, there's not only graphic designers, but they seem to be having, they, they have this fun job of being able to just commission people they find interesting to work with them on things.
0: Right. In,
1: if in the UK, you do a foundation year, usually somewhere else mm-hmm. before you then commit to, a, to doing a degree somewhere, you know, not like RISD where I am now, where everyone's kind of straight in on the foundation. And in my foundation, that kind of all crystallised. We had a we had a fantastic teacher um, at, on our foundation course and uh, outside of Cardiff, and he he showed us iMagazine. magazine. So that kind of was another thing that yeah. I started. You know, that kind of really crystallised this idea of oh, this profession and it's kind of actually quite interesting. And there are all these different ways of all these different modes of practice. Um, so a lot of yeah, really through magazines, I suppose, and through okay. music's and record music and record labels.
0: Yeah. I mean, it. it's interesting. I don't I, I. I. don't want this to sound like a reductive question at all. And I totally feel like w- the story that you're telling is very much mirrors my own experience of discovering all of these things. But when I look at the work that you've done as a professional under the name Practice, I would not have thought of Ray Gunn and Neville Brody as kind of the early influences. Yeah. Uh, and and i mean i I was the same way that that it was music, it was brody, it was all of these things, and I don't think any of the work I've done kind of follows in that trajectory anymore yeah. what uh how did that kind of transition happen as you were kind of growing as a designer
1: i mean I think part of it was just pure inspiration and even just um just the what they represented in terms of uh the the possible the possibilities for what a graphic designer can can do Mm -hmm. and there's certain autonomy Mm -hmm. and i think brody was interesting because he obviously he had sort of editorial influence at the face i used to buy the face magazine a lot and uh oliver as well just just this idea that you know imagine you know my work yeah obviously formally is very different from Vaughn's work, but at the same time, it was just for me. This what I what I found super inspiring was, you know, and I loved the graphics. And also, often, I loved their graphics because I couldn't quite possibly conceive of matching what they do. Right, and it was sort of I appreciated it because it was so different from mm-hmm. what I felt I was slowly starting to do with graphic design. But it also just represented uh, such a. It was so aspirational. The idea of imagine that you're super into various bands, and your job is to be the person that articulates and interprets right what these bands are all about and right. so it was sort of and the same with like The face and fashion and how to imagine being involved in fashion and art direction mm-hmm. and working with photographers working with musicians It was again that that whole connectivity and capacity to Almost sort of get into things like I loved graphic design But I also loved I wanted to also be an architect and I wanted to be an artist and I wanted okay. to be a hip-hop producer <laughs> Right and i mean this was all before the internet where i didn't have youtube to look up how to program an npc or have a sample <laughs> off records so i kind of fell into graphic design but it was sort of graphic design was interesting because in my mind very early on and without even thinking about it but it, to me it seemed that graphic design was a perfect profession to get into that didn't actually necessarily involve graphic design involved all the other oh just, right i mean uh, and I, yeah. you know as you were
0: saying that i was starting to to think about my last question, and and I had kind of reduced that to, to a formal comparison, but as soon as you started answering that, I realized that the approach or the methodologies are actually very similar in, in the fact that you're kind of often, uh, I know that you design kind of t- custom typefaces for a lot of your projects. So there's this kind of authorship gesture, mm-hmm. and and you are very much present in a lot of the work mm-hmm. in the way that I would say... Von Oliver Neville Brody were but in a yeah. very different way
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. I think again the inspiration of I mean Brody There was another kind of revelation the idea that you know, oh, these? Uh, font choices that you have on your computer I could I could add to that like right. my a font that I Might design could be on that list and that just seemed mind-blowing as a graphic design student. Yeah, I mean, very early on started there was a for a while I only had, our, I borrowed our family PC and was using CorelDRAW, oh, I mean, yeah. Windows 95, and Coral Draw had a very crude font-making uh, kind of uh, functionality of some kind. <laughs> I forget what it was, it was very crude, but some of my first fonts were, I mean, the first version of Career Sans was in CorelDRAW. Um, That's amazing. That, that was, to me, was incredible. I mean, that was really inspirational, getting to college and understanding that I could actually Essentially produce software like it, something that's installable and becomes visible You know part of plugged into that vernacular infrastructure of yeah. being in a menu that was sort of incredible to me The first on the world wide web was you know 1994 starting at Ravensbourne got my first email address and then also understanding that not only could I potentially design a font that would get Installed on any system, but I could publish something and then it's instantly readable right anywhere in the world and that just kind of seemed like a really, uh, kind of like an epiphany. That was a really powerful moment where suddenly all the things that I was getting interested in, I, I could very well be on the same, uh, level in terms of distribution or immediate access with what I was trying to do.
0: Right. I mean, that's so interesting. And so did you, when you graduated, you started practice pretty much right away?
1: Pretty much right away. I mean, I did, I, I was three years at Ravensbourne and then applied to the Royal College of Art. Okay. Um, and, did the, did the thing that I pretty much advise most students not to do, which was just to go uh, straight from one graphic design program, straight into another graphic design program. Right. But I kind of, the last couple of years at Ravensbourne, the last year particularly, like a lot of the teachers that I decided to go to Ravensbourne for, like Teal Triggs oh, yeah. uh, in particular was an inspiration. And she was at Ravensbourne when I started there. Oh, okay. And then she moved to the London College of Communication, right? LCP, London College of Print at the time. and. <laughs> So by the last year, I actually didn't go in much into Ravensbourne. I'd, I'd moved into uh, the East End of London, and I was I was doing a little bit of work with various designers, um, and I kind of felt like I'd had a year out in a way. Like, right. I went down to Ravensbourne, you know, once a week sometimes, and I was mostly working with the fashion department on a catalogue for them. Oh, interesting. Um, and so, but I did go straight on to the R C A. Two years there, and I really had this idea at that point that I didn't want to go and work anywhere. Like I just really wanted to get into being a designer and I didn't like this idea of starting out as a junior designer in quotation marks, or, you know, there was a definite sort of arrogance and overconfidence I think in, I had this kind of set of ethics that I was not going to ever send my work, uh, to any publications for publicity. God forbid, you know, God forbid I would send press releases. I didn't want my work into awards or anything. I just wanted my work to be seen in a book on a bookshelf or in real life, like I had this code of ethics. Uh, I was very fortunate. I did actually work for a few months at Random House. Oh, okay. When I left college, um, Kaz Hildebrand, who is uh, an art director at Random House in the literary fiction department, uh, the one plan I had was, you know, okay, I, I actually still need to get work. I'm not, like, no one knows who I am. I'm not gonna just, just gonna sit by my phone and expect that I'm gonna get some work. Right. And so I thought, well, the one place I reckon I could do what I considered to be real work that would just immediately get out there without, and you know, and have direct engagement with it would be publishers, where I could design book covers. And that would be something that someone would just give to me and I went around all yeah. the publishers I could think of my, my dream was verso and I went to see verso and, um, and <laughs> Didn't get anything from them um, But random house Kaz hildebrand kind of could see that I didn't really want a job But I was trying to start my own studio and she said um, Here listen, I'll, I'll give you three days a week come in here and you can design book covers and then the other two days You can run around london looking for work and I still am grateful to this day for her for doing that and yeah. kind of part, Partly taking pity on me, but partly trying you know trying to encourage me. Yeah, and, and that sort of then coincided with it I, I was I reached a point after three months there where I had suddenly had an invitation from ECAL to go and teach there for three weeks Okay, thanks to a friend of mine who was still at the RCA who had come from ECAL. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah um,
0: Wait, so how long? Uh, how long were you out of school before you got that invitation to teach
1: that was about? Two or three months. Okay. Oh, wow. And that was not at all due to any kind of reputation that I might have had because I didn't have any reputation and no one knew who I was. But um, I had been doing a bit of teaching while I was at the RCA. I kind of sought out tutoring. I was tutoring it. I mean, that was definitely a thing I wanted to do. I basically used the RCA as a set of um, experiments in various modes of practice. Like I wanted to, I sought out real commissions while I was at the RCA. Mm-hmm. I tried to read, I tried to write, I knew I wanted to teach. So I sought out some tutoring at a polytechnic in Cambridge. Right. And um, I'd started to get connected to designers like Cornell Vinland in Switzerland, mm-hmm. which is how my involvement with Line 2 ended up happening. And I was just very fortunate that um, every year that um, Pierre Keller, who's the, who was the director of ECAL and their graphic design uh, faculty would come to London and other in Paris and other places looking for interesting people. Yeah, and so they were coming to London to meet GTF and Fuel and Nicole, my friend Nicole Nicole Udry, who now teaches at UCL and she's now just become the the head of the most beautiful Swiss Books competition. Oh yeah, um, it was. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Nicole who kind of said, "Hey, um, my friend James just graduated and he he teaches and he's doing interesting work. You should meet him while you're in London." And they did. And then three weeks, you know, a few weeks later, I got this call early in the morning saying. Uh, we'd like you to come and do a three-week workshop with our students. Um, they're doing in a museum identity project, and you have to come. You're like, and okay. And I was like, um, well, yeah, well, that will be great. Okay, good, thanks. And that was it. Wow. And so it really forced me to decide: do I want to keep working freelance at the publisher, or do I risk everything and you know, once-in-a-lifetime chance to go to Switzerland to teach? But then, when I get back to London, I've got nothing. Right. I really have to. Hustle and try and get some commission work because otherwise it's just, you know Sean my wife and I we were married already at that point. Okay. She was starting a fashion label She had just left her job and we were kind of right trying to figure things out And it's sort of just one of these, you know, we all get these moments where you have to take a risk
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I Don't mean to keep taking your story and applying it to my own life But the the parallels here are actually really interesting to me um, And and I want to get into teaching but I want to finish I want to finish talking about practice a little bit Uh, and and hopefully draw some some parallels between these in that, you know, I think it makes sense. I understand kind of feeling like it might be arrogant in some way, but being in school and having these kind of epiphanies or these revelations and opinions really about kind of how you want to work and then that conflict of, well, then how do I make money doing that thing versus kind of going to get a job? And I, I... I don't say this with any kind of arrogance or pride but I feel like I was the same way but I didn't have the tools to know how to do that Mm -hmm. after graduation and I went to a undergrad design program where it was kind of very traditional design that you go and work for a studio design is for clients and so I was kind of doing that but I had all these other ideas and I was interested in writing and teaching but that seemed like that was not an option And so I went and started a career kind of very traditionally. And then that's where this podcast came from, honestly, is that all those other interests became these side projects. Yeah. I was like, okay, there's actually a way that these can connect. And I don't know how they are. And so that's why I left a very good job to go back to grad school. And then my grad school experience was like the experience you're talking about, where it was just this way for me to kind of try on or perform these different modes and so it became podcasting and writing and i curated a show and i started teaching to kind of figure out how i could kind of bring these together and it sounds like that's very much the way you've built your career and so in a way i'm not saying this to kind of like uh you know congratulate you but you're kind of the epitome
1: of the scratching the surface guest in a a lot of ways which is why i've been enjoying the series i I think i mean that's sort of a lot of i mean all the people that i've ever found interesting you sort of start to realize that you know rather than You know, you always wonder like, wow, how did they make that happen? And how do they know what to do? And you see, the more you talk to people, uh, and this is what, you know, you know, this as well from your experiences, the the more it's just everyone, even to this day, I'm still trying to just figure things out and I'm kind of, uh, thinking aloud and I'm just asking questions and trying things out. Right. And I think if it's all still coming from, uh, an honest place of curiosity and a desire to continue learning, people pick up on that and you kind of just fall into various projects or enterprises right. or activities that really suit what, you know, the various inquiries that you're engaged with.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I want to... I I can't remember if I read this in, in kind of your official biography or if it was in, in that, that RIT lecture, but you talked about the name of your studio being practiced with an S, mm. which in British English is a verb, and that yes. that was kind of this this great metaphor for you that design can be a noun and a verb and, yeah. and that that realization I had that same realization which was an epiphany to me years ago which kind of led me on the path that I am now I'm curious how you thought about that or where that kind of discovery became such a integral part of your your practice that it became the name of your
1: studio yeah this was I mean this was part of my desire I mean one of the reasons I went to the uh rca was i was inspired by the other people who had kind of gone there met like-minded designers and started interesting studios so definitely you know graphic thought facility gtf they were a big influence and they were several years ahead of me uh mm paris you know one one half of mm paris had been at the i think it was Matthias. i can't remember exactly was had been at the rca fuel were a big influence to me They kind of autonomy and even right. uh mystery that surrounded what they were doing
0: yeah
1: um and i was and between <laughs> Ravensbourne. i mean the one i didn't really ever do any work experience i did the one internship or it was called work experience at the That's time perfect. in the uk i did was between Ravensbourne and the rca and it was uh with tomato oh yeah and this was in 90 dropped off around London to different people and uh, they called me up and I ended up just sort of unofficially joining them for the summer Yeah, and uh, so I was really fat, I was really into the kind of whole mystique of studios Collectives and the names they had so I was really I mean it turned out I had I made really great friends and a lot of people who I could have easily worked with at the RCA But when it came to graduate everyone kind of went and did the various things and a few of the people I really felt like I could work with were the year below me Mm. And then ended up starting their own things like Orbeke and, uh, right. and Maki Kaiser from Orbeke and other designers like Laurent Banner. Like, they were people I definitely probably could have tried to start a studio with, but we were just in different years and doing different things. So, it, it, I came out of the RCA. It didn't have my, cr- my crew that I thought I might come out of the RCA with. Right. But I still wanted a name. Like, I wanted, it's like naming a band. Like, you wanted. part of the reason you might want to form a band is just simply to come up with a rockin' name. Like a real- Right. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So and so of course I ended up the funny part is that I ended up with probably the most boring <laughs> right. like it's not at all rock and roll i mean there were a lot of sort of monosyllabic or single word names like fuel you know smarto, mm-hmm. all these names so i was sort of really this was really something i was uh, following and critically analyzing and i thought well i'm going to start up i mean one benefit of being by myself, if I have a name, I'll sound bigger than I really am.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just really wanted this thing of, you know, what I st- had lots of different ideas. I had lists of names for my studio before I even, you know, yeah. I was already assuming I could actually just successfully run a studio. Right. It was getting way ahead of myself. But practice, it really was this thing of, I mean, I kind of, I, I relished this like perversity in having a really boring name. And one that, as it turned out, I had to like laboriously explain over the phone when someone was trying to write me an email. It's like, no, no, it's with an S, it's not right. with a C. And, yeah. Um, but just this idea of something, I mean, ultimately, I loved the, the, um, the nuance that you have in British English of, like you mentioned, practice with an S being a verb mm-hmm. while sounding actually like practice with a C, the noun practice with a C is the professional practice, like an architectural practice or a doctor's practice. Right. Sounds very legitimate, but practice with an S is the actual opposite of that. It's more, much more being an amateur and trying to claim amateur status and the idea of, you know, the literal dictionary definition of repeating a task and learning from it yeah and that's really what i wanted graphic design to be i wanted to just take the spirit of trying out modes of practice at the rca and not graduate and become professional and kind Mm -hmm. of put away foolish ideas from college but i wanted to just continue in that spirit and so it was sort of this statement of intent to call myself practice sounding professional but actually admitting and actually desiring to be an amateur and to just continuously learn from my practice and yeah ultimately to never, you know, to really try and avoid as much as possible, uh, to become professional.
0: I mean, that's, that's, uh, I love everything about that. I'm curious how, you know, kind of being a fresh graduate, I'm, I'm very attracted to this idea that this was something, this was a very conscious decision that your practice, uh, now, now I'm, I feel like I'm using this word, uh, <laughs> too much, but the, the career that you wanted was always going to incorporate, all of these different things, you it seems like very early on, you didn't just want to be a kind of graphic designer, as in a, a design as a service that you were very early on interested in writing and teaching and workshops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how, how did you kind of get started? How did you start a, a studio thinking about kind of incorporating all of these things that maybe people didn't think would fall under a, a traditional studio practice?
1: um it by no means happened immediately that's for sure and you know I had this strategy in my mind but of course I would take any job that someone would give me and right. I mean even to this day I'm surprised and grateful anytime someone calls me up or emails me with a project and you kind of think oh wow really you know I'm <laughs> yeah. this is super you know it's a fantastic project or an artist I really like um I mean definitely to start with I mean I was fortunate coming out of the RCA you sort of build a network at the RCA and I actually hung out a lot in the Uh, curating contemporary art Mm -hmm. department and Teresa Gledo who was the director at the time of that department became an informal mentor to me I kept going to all of their lectures and then started to get to know some of their students I ended up designing posters for their lectures and then they all went and graduated and got interesting jobs at museums or galleries around London and then luckily I started to get phone calls from some of them saying hey do you want to design a freeze or art forum ad for this exhibition or you know we need a website or something so that was how, you know, I was very fortunate that I did start to get interesting work early on, but it, it was very slow because I kind of also deliberately tried not to promote myself. My website was very obscure. I had, at the time, this was Flash era. Okay. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was so used to having to click skip intro on websites. So my whole website just said skip intro on in massive letters.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: And and it was very difficult to find out who I was or what the I didn't show any work. So I was kind of very, very, a bit obfuscatory in terms of um promoting myself but so it was very slow like it, it's i always wanted you know a lot of other people just get work straight away and it was very slow for me and but at the same time it was sort of less sort of telling people hey i'm not just a graphic designer but i also would like to be involved editorially or or i would like to contribute something to it and never wanted to presume that i would be able to do so or that that it would be appropriate for every project. But it was more just out, of you know, through time. And because I was genuinely interested in curatorial practice or in architecture, and I would read about these things, and I would relish the opportunity to discuss the things I was into with the people who are Mm -hmm. actually practicing in those fields, that just gradually, I was fortunate enough to have enough clients who would, you know, humor me, if nothing else, in terms of taking on my advice, or if I would sort of critique the writing sometimes, or I would find myself editing things if there was no editor involved on the project or working with a small gallery. And I realized that the books weren't in any of the bookshops that I liked. And so I would start to look into distribution and start to advise them that you should not work with that distributor because we never see the books anywhere. So you kind of just find ways into understanding what you can contribute as a graphic designer. And, you know, a realization over time for me was rather than deviating from a traditional graphic design profession by getting into these other parts of the project, to me, that is totally graphic design as well. Right. Um, The more supposedly, like, considering having meetings and the dialogue you have as being part of your practice and considering, uh, you know, uh, copy editing or uh, proposing, you know, if they're proposing some writers for a catalog and say, oh, do you know this writer? I love this writer. And then they actually maybe listen to you sometimes and they call them up. So you realize you start to have this capacity to contribute on a, not on an equal level, I would never presume, but at least sort of on a, to contribute in many other ways than simply presentation. Mm -hmm.
0: That's a good way to start, talk to, to start bringing in the teaching side to all of this, because I think, uh, let me think how to phrase this. For me, I'm, as I've been, you know, I'm I'm very interested in teaching right now. I'm teaching kind of, uh, I, I started teaching a year ago and then have kind of really upped The amount of teaching that i'm doing this year and so it's something that i'm thinking about very deeply a lot lately and i'm starting i feel like i'm just now starting to see the relationships between my own personal design practice and the things that i'm doing in the classroom Mm -hmm. and i'm curious for you this is kind of two questions because you you had mentioned kind of very early on that you had an interest in teaching and so I'm, i'm curious about that but then i'm also uh would love to hear you know, essentially, as soon as you graduated, you were teaching right away. And the fact that you've had these two things in parallel, do you even view them as as separate entities or, or are they all, is this all one thing for you?
1: Um, it's sort of, it's a bit of both in a way. Like they're definitely on various practical levels, they're definitely separate. Um, okay. Even just thinking, you know, day to day at the moment, this is, I mean, my second year of full-time teaching here in the U.S. at, at RISD. <laughs> Um, and obviously it's very different planning syllabi and then having to jump out and do a Skype call with clients on, on right. talking to printers. But on the other hand, there is definitely a synergy and a kind of, uh, in a way, I kind of feel like I can't do one without the other. And I'm definitely in both more theoretical and conceptual ways. And also I'm always trying to, um, uh, be sure also in very practical ways, I'm trying to bring, uh, each. Side to the other, you know. So definitely,
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: given class, I'm equally interested in talking on purely formal terms, or even just opening up InDesign sometimes, just to like I have this um, attitude of, you know, let's be honest. You're here, you know, maybe you're, this is the only class you're going to have with me at RISD, and I have this kind of experience in this field. And if you want to ask me something, ask me, and I'll show you. Like right. it's just basic level, but I'm also going to assign readings, and I'm going to, you know, critique the thinking behind this and get much more into deeper levels of things. Um, But I also, and that's kind of the same with a graphic design practice. I'm, I, I, I I value equally talking to a binder or to a printer, as Mm -hmm. well as to an editor or a curator. And I think just this, for me, it's really, um, graphic design is far more about collaboration and dialogue and diplomacy even and negotiation mm, than yeah. it is about authorship or solo practice or right. uh, claiming you know ownership of anything uh, i'm sort of digressing a little bit here but that's sort of that's sort of what i'm putting into the classroom as well and
0: yeah i, I want to go back to something you said kind of at the beginning of that though because it's something that really struck a chord with me and and is a goal of of mine both as a educator but also for this podcast which is kind of uh you know, shortening the distance between theory and practice and show and putting those things in into kind of one space and so um you know making sure that theory and writing and thinking about these things are actually not disconnected from the making and then also kind of in the classroom if it's a studio class bringing in readings and lectures and things so you're you're looking at things formally but then also theoretically conceptually culturally um so i have two again sorry i have two questions around that idea uh one is i talked to john caserta and i'm kind of f- familiar with RISD's program I'm, and that seems something that's very in line with the way that just that department thinks about that and i'm, I'm kind of <laughs> curious if that was one of the attractions for you to kind of be a part of that and to go full-time and then also the second part, which is completely unrelated, I should I should have asked these questions separately. But I'm interested in how your students kind of respond to that, um, and and are students kind of open to the theoretical side when it is just a studio class?
1: Yeah, these are very good questions, and they're questions that I'm still sort of grappling with and yeah. thinking about. I mean, and it's it's been a big difference between teaching in Europe and teaching here. I mean, most most of my teaching experience in Europe has actually been at. ECAL and had been at the backplatz typography right. In right. Arnhem. and they're very kind of a lot more uh, individual desk crits or just following the work I mean the Backplatz is sort of studio working as a studio manager while they work on commission projects mm-hmm. just as much as um, following their own explorations and <laughs> so now at RISD it's you know much more structured classes and um, you know I teach seminar which is you know for grad students and the new new thing for me is also now teaching undergrads i mean my experience with risd had mostly been uh we you know we moved to the us in 2010 and i was living in chicago with my family for six years and i was coming to risd from chicago as a thesis critic for the grad program okay did that for about four years and that was most of my experience and i was aware that the undergrad program definitely had parallels you know the same there is same teachers are teaching Mm -hmm. on both sides but there's sort of different Uh, interests and different approaches in the undergrad program and it's something I'm still getting to know Um, but I think um, you know you're asking I'm trying to remember the question about between you know the distance shortening the distance I like what you said shortening distance between theory and practice yeah and and so that's been it's good for me I mean my very first semester last year at RISD kind of ran the gamut where I was teaching design studio one to the sophomores who had just come out of their hardcore, you know, foundation yeah. boot camp at RISD. And then the very next day I was teaching uh, grad thesis one. Okay. Yeah. And so, and and I and it was interesting. So rather than finding myself having to kind of schizophrenically shift between characters in the way I talk to them, I, I still felt like I was talking on an equal level and recommending readings and things like that to the design studio students and also very much you know in grad thesis and then grad seminar which i just taught last spring definitely applying everything we're reading to practice and ultimately mm. to this notion my ultimate goal and something that i'm still trying to figure out what is you know i, I don't really have a sense of what is my particular pedagogical approach like i don't really have a, a lot of educators i talk to i'm really yeah. impressed they know exactly how to sum up their philosophy and i'm still figuring that out but i think one thing is sort of uh, establishing a sustainable practice and how to at least encourage people to not split this idea of theory versus practice right and how to recognize that uh, Theory, I mean I often I, I any student of mine will tell you I'm very much into definitions and etymologies of words So we're always focusing on, okay. you know, what is? Theory, I mean theory is a for me is a great one in terms of theory the de- one definition is a set of principles upon which practice is based Oh, so interesting already, already theory is uh yeah kind of uh is irrefutably connected to practice and and for me that's being theoretical in a class and it's a challenge i've had you know you're in a group i mean the, the great thing about rissy is the, the group crit culture i mean a lot of people will say that's maybe a negative thing but everyone needs to talk about their own work and they also need to on the spot be able to formulate a critical right. response to another <laughs> student's work that's there in front of them and. And I, and I've kind of come to contemporary art in the same way, where I, I'm really encouraging the students to, you know, criticality is asking questions in a basic, right, or on a basic level, and and often just you know one way to start is just describing what you see in front of you, from the color to oh this is big or this is small, yeah, and not being afraid of asking, questions. question, looking, looking formally at things, and very quickly you fall into theoretical discourse and criticality because it gets de- deep very quickly the more you ask fundamental questions to your fellow student mm-hmm. or from the teacher to the student. And you find this in, you know, I'll go to a, a lecture by an artist and then someone will ask a question seemingly obvious about their practice. So, you know, why is your work doing this relating to whatever, you know, underground mm-hmm. culture? And the more basic the question, the more stumped the artist often is. Yeah. And and I, I, I so this for me is kind of, I don't know if this answers the question, but it's sort of a way of uh, not being afraid to kind of think, oh, I, I shouldn't ask a formal question or I shouldn't ask a technical question. I should only ask a, a loftier academic question. But for me, that's sort of a way of flattening it all. And you kind of it's simultaneous. The criticality, the theoretical aspect and the more practical.
0: Yeah. Practical
1: or kind of pure making kind of questions. Do I, I liked what you were saying about.
0: That, that these lines are kind of very blurry and that often, you know, talking about one side can kind of influence or lead to the other side. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious when you're kind of planning for classes, when you're, you know, writing lectures, assigning readings, is that on your mind of, you know, very clearly how this reading will relate to the thing that they are making? Yeah. And, okay. And then... That's do you, a quick answer to that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and then... <laughs> And then that that then kind of makes the second question easier. Than, then do students get that connection right away? Or or to them, is it like, oh, why do I have to do this reading? I just want to make stuff that looks cool. You know what I mean? Do they get it yeah. kind of
1: right away also? Sometimes, sometimes they don't. And I'm kind of happy about that as well. I mean, often even my assignments is sort of – like I like to enforce a kind of – I mean, I – when I, when I give talks probably what's evident here already in this interview, I kind of tend to digress and I'm rather verbose and I try to, it's it's something I struggle with as a writer, but with my assignments, I try to write almost like one sentence prompts or provocations that I think about. And they're often a little bit, they're very open usually. And they're often, you know, often the medium is just, you know, I like this phrase as appropriate. Mm hmm like for them to really think about what is appropriate and often, you know, what is appropriate is actually the most radical response you can think of when you take the logic of, well, everything that my research and my thinking is leading towards appears to be this thing, which is actually rather unexpected rather than a poster. Like I'm happy for them to come back for a poster assignment and say, I need to do a projection instead. And then it's like, okay, great. Because, you know, tell me why, like, I want you to convince me. I'm very interested in training a certain level of rhetoric and, uh, but, um, but I think same with the reading like I, I want to just get them into I mean I hope to at least encourage and share a joy of reading and I think it's crucial as a graphic designer as a typographer you should read you have to read really otherwise you're really not gonna not necessarily in terms of you can't possibly be an intelligent graphic designer if you don't read but it's sort of you're not gonna have any fun if you don't right. read right. as a graphic designer um and so often I'll, I'll I'd like to do, I like to assign surprising readings they like wait why are we reading this in a typography class Yeah. But then the pleasure, the, the pleasure I have, and I, I, I'm fortunate that you know there is the, the students are really fantastic. They're great, and they will often come in with insights, and they'll they'll understand why they'll have read through it. And I'll, I'll you know I share. Uh, we've got a great faculty. We're sharing ideas and strategies. I've been talking to you know Paul Salles or Kitras yeah. of the new faculty who I've been fortunate to join with. You know I was talking to Paul recently about how can we get prompts or how, what can we give them to come back yeah. with something when they're reading. And I've, I've got them just coming back with one word that they've picked from a reading. And that, and this is something that Lucy and uh, Lucinda Hitchcock and Paul have done previously, you know, come back and typeset a sentence. Or I've got them typesetting a word at the moment from their readings. That's and amazing. And that such great discussions. And just by having to focus on picking a word yeah. to come into class with, and they'll pick a word that's surprising, like, wait, was that word in the text? Or or the word that are several people will have picked the same word, but they'll each have a different insight. Right. And so that so the, the nice thing is, you know, <coughs> I'm very happy for some of them to kind of several years later understand why there was a reason behind it. And that was sort of part of my experience. I had a lot of readings at Ravensbourne at the RCA and it was only years later I kind of realized like, oh, okay, I see what they were doing here. And yeah. so there's that as well. I'm also encouraging them just to build a library like, I'll load them with PDFs and I don't expect them to read everything, but I just tell them download these and save them reading in the next five, 10 years if you want to, you know? Yeah. So I think it's just partly, you know, I think studio class or seminar, it it should all involve reading and it should be sharing readings. I want them to come in and say, Hey, have you checked this out? And that's part of the joy that I'm sure you would probably agree with teaching where it's this mutually beneficial arrangement where the ideal for me is they're putting me onto just as many things that I'm putting them onto. Right
0: yeah exactly i i love
1: everything about
0: that i i uh i mean you were very generous in sending over a couple of your syllabi for your for your classes that you're teaching and i i looked at all the readings and there were a cup, there was quite a few that i had never read and i was like uh i shouldn't say this on while we're recording but i was like i d- was downloading these I was like, gonna, <laughs> yeah i was like oh these are these are these are interesting and i do the same thing and you know this is I asked that question very selfishly because I'm the same way where I love reading. I read all the time. I, on the websites for all my classes, I, again, just loads of PDFs and things that are sometimes very related and sometimes a little less related, but there are connections there. And it's because, you know, it's kind of that building that library and wanting the students to kind of see all of yep. these things and I think I've had varying degrees of success of making the connections that I'm still yeah. you know figuring
1: out I mean, I think part of it's really always wanting to emphasize regardless of class emphasize That you know that in a sense I mean I often talk about this is sort of you can think of it in two ways you either as a As a as a student you're often talking about, you know, when I'm out in the real world, you know, there's either no real world or actually school is also the real world Like you're already in it like right as a student, you can if you want to make something in multiple and distribute it, there's nothing stopping you. So you're sort of you're already there, you're already in, in context. And so for me, typography, you know, if a typography class, if I get them reading about uh, urbanism or architectural space or uh, curatorial practice, it's still sort of that's the context in which you as a typographer will be operating and you're going to come up against spatial or editorial or curatorial concerns that Right. Uh, Form or constrain or have an effect on your typographic practice. Right. So for me, it's just it's in a way It's kind of almost a heavy-handed way of me saying that, you know, you know, let, yes, let's read some typography classics But also you you need to know about this because right. your, your, as a typographer, your work is going to be kinetic and fluid and spatial It's not just thinking about black and white forms on a page. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a good way This is a good way to to kind of transition into talking about writing a little bit. Um I have just a couple couple more questions to kind of start heading in into the end, but I was very curious about your writing practice because uh, you know you've been kind of writing and publishing throughout your whole career also, and it's again, it kind of sounds like that was a very intentional decision. I'm curious kind of where that started and kind of how you got got into writing as part of your practice.
1: yeah, I mean, it was less intentional, definitely more aspirational. like, okay. like I kind of like the idea of being a graphic designer who writes, okay, yeah. and to this day, I never. I make sure to never describe myself as a writer, okay. um, but I do, you know, biography or whatever. I list that I, I, I write, right. I write, but I, I don't, But I'm not a writer. Like yeah. I try to write, I essay. You know, I love, yeah. the, I love the definition of essay is you know, try a, a trial, a try. You know, yeah. a, a try, and, I mean, part of it was again, you know starting to understand the kinds of designers whose practice I admired I realized that a lot of them taught and a lot of them wrote Mm -hmm. and I admired that you know confidence and that criticality of trying to and also sort of generosity I would call it to Mm. share one's you know thinking in public and it was this paralysis and fear I had for a long time so I still to this day I don't particularly think I'm a (laughs) I'm not that great a writer. I rely heavily, you know, Sean, my partner is a fantastic editor and writer and she is strong. She helps me out a lot and critiques me as do other editors. Um, and I, um, but at the same time, I kind of, you know, the very first piece I wrote in public, I think was for dot, 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 this piece about color, which has turned into this ongoing series of lectures that I give in a body of work that I'm body of research work called pop culture, color theory. Okay. And, and I felt like it wasn't ready for publishing. And then now when I reread it, it's sort of very flawed. But yeah. I think it was a, it was a breakthrough in terms of, okay, you're scared of writing this. And the minute you see it in print, you're going to want to revise it and edit it. Right. Uh, you might even want to contradict some of the positions you were occupying at that time. Yeah. But the fact that it's out there and it solicits feedback and dialogue with other people was amazing and really valuable. And so that's what I like about writing. I find it very difficult and painful to write. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I appreciate sort of the fact that you you have, a, it, it's a really useful way of entering into dialogue with people who offer feedback or criticism or, or arguments, and I think that's, to, ha- to have this sense of debate and yeah. dialogue with one's field is something that I really value and I kind of benefit from, and it's sort of, it's another part of my practice that interfaces with uh, my teaching. So, right. often... Often a lecture I give will evolve into a piece of writing or vice versa. A piece of writing I've done will then translate into becoming a lecture. I mean, I sort of, most of my writing is probably not officially, they're not officially essays. They're probably more illustrated or annotated lectures or slideshow. Mm, and it's still something I'm I'm working towards. Like I, I want to get more into fully opinionated uh, critical pieces where I'm not necessarily just simply recounting historical events that I that I find interesting. And that's so it's something right. that I love doing. It really it, uh, feeds my practice for sure. It enables me to kind of at least be forced into clarifying or at least for myself, like, yeah, what is I'm critical of certain things? And why is that? And what what am I try, actually trying to say with all this and writing yeah. an essay sort of forces you to interrogate your own thinking?
0: Are do you are you mostly writing on commission? Or are you kind of are you kind of doing personal writing to figure out? You know, I love that last answer, do you do you do that just for yourself when you're like, okay, here's this thing that I'm thinking about, does that take the form of kind of personal writing or is it mostly when you're asked to do
1: something? I like being asked to do something because it's, you know, one of the, it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, we all love having constraints forced upon us and then right. trying of fight our way out of them. And so I, I actually really, I find that easier in a way to be commissioned to write something. It's like, okay, at least I know to what I can push against. Um, But then a lot of the other writing that I I kind of often someone will contact me and I say, well, actually, I've got this thing that I've had sort of just percolating and it's often just notes. Like I use uh, writing software that's on my phone and on my iPad and on my computer and I'm constantly just writing bullet points to myself. And often it's just for syllabi now. (laughs) Mm. Something will occur to me, I'll write it down and then I start to realize like I'm sort of formulating a certain position here with this thing and maybe I could turn that into a piece of writing or often it's uh, often it's i'll give a lecture and it it feels like okay that lecture actually somehow made some kind of sense to people it seemed so maybe i should start to further kind of clarify that into a into an essay of some kind so you could say it's sort of self-initiated but still even then it's kind of coming from uh you know a a constraint of needing to i need to have a lecture for next week's class and so i I, i'm going to sort of I'm always inserting my own opinion and criticality into the lectures. So a lot of students will probably attest to this, that it's sort of never, they get very political, they get very critical. It's not simply just recounting Mm -hmm. historical canon or whatever. I'm kind of always trying to even kind of second guess myself and my own assumptions about why am I showing this work? Why am I not showing more work from this part of the world or, you know, from this particular gender or whatever?
0: Right. You know, I talked to my, my own former professor, uh, Ellen Lupton. And she said something that was almost exactly the same, where all of her writing, she says, comes from uh, lectures or workshops or kind of public talks. And the, the kind of speaking in public is very important for her own creative process as a writer. And hearing you say that, you know, it's almost like a. It, it's reminding me of kind of like a, a stand up comedian or something, where it's kind of like you're working yeah, these things out in
1: public. Yeah, and you can kind of get idea. that that's the thing. I mean, it's a, it's a rare moment. I mean, I've really come to appreciate the lecture as a valid graphic design format Yeah. where rather than simply a chore of, you know, having, oh, I've got to photograph my work and pull together a portfolio talk rather than really trying to play with the format of what is the lecture? What do I want to say with it? How can I kind of highlight my influences, but weave them together <laughs> with my own work and to uh, acknowledge, you know, uh, Kind of pay dues in a way as well like where am I coming from? Yeah, Allow the lecture to be a homage to certain other practitioners and also to kind of Share your enthusiasm with people and put other people onto practitioners that they, they might not know about um, But then also even just you know, can I add sound? Can I I mean mm. the last version of pop culture color theory that I did at the design office uh, Here in Providence a couple of years ago had multiple projectors. It had a smoke machine and had oh, a sound wow. and so it's really kind of this idea of as a graphic designer, why do we just stick to keynote? I mean, can we can we yeah. play with you know the same way that we like to play with different types of printing or different types of projection? Why shouldn't we also play with this format? Mm-hmm. And I think that's so. I think enjoying the format of a of the lecture and the slideshow and what one can do with it hand in hand goes along with you know turning into turning into a piece of writing and yeah that writing also becoming an influence on my design as well. Like I think formally some of the realizations I have through writing start to influence you know how how a piece of design might actually look in the end oh as well. interesting
0: yeah do you I, I I love that kind of playing with the form of the lecture and that's something this is starting to lead into kind of the end uh the end of the conversation where I kind of ask a lot of the similar questions um and I'm this is a question that I ask everybody but I'm going to ask it to you in two different ways because I like what you're saying about kind of playing with the form of the lecture is something that's very interesting to me and i'm as i've been doing you know as i've been recording these for for a year now i've my uh my original kind of plan was that i was very interested in design criticism uh and so i thought that these interviews were going to turn into some sort of book or text about what i thought design criticism could be and then I kind of realized that the podcast was this actually interesting form in and of itself and might reach people who think that they're not interested in design criticism or, or say they're not into reading about design. And so this kind of playing with the form of design discourse is something that's very interesting to me. And so the question that I ask everybody is kind of what they think is missing or lacking in kind of current design discourse or what are the issues that they wish people would be talking about writing about lecturing about more kind of in 2017 so that's that's one question but i'm also interested in the the form that these things can take and um you know if you have thoughts about other ways that we can kind of initiate this kind of deeper discourse that we're we're talking about Mm -hmm.
1: the first part of the question is a big one i mean that's sort (laughs) of And it's one of those things where you kind of, the minute you're, I mean, it's very easy to to be critical on in certain ways about the level of, you know, graphic design criticism, perhaps compared with say art criticism or architecture mm-hmm. criticism. Um, but at the same time, you know, whenever I'm critical about it, I'm like, <laughs> you know, well, what am I going to, what am I doing about it? Like, right. Right, right. To design observer and I'm not, or, you know, to other things. So I've sort of, I mean, in general, I feel like it's heading in a healthy direction. I mean, I, I feel like, something that fascinates me is, you know, imagine if film criticism or architecture criticism or art criticism, imagine if graphic design criticism was at that same level in terms of maybe taking certain designers to task over, I don't know, even just on the bad binding of a particular book. I don't know on that level, perhaps, (laughs) or even on, you know, whether it's it's ethically appropriate to work with a given client. I mean, I think there's sort of an ethics and politics in graphic design that I personally would like to see explored further Mm -hmm. and, As I say that, I'm always fully aware that, you you know, I like to, it's easy to pride oneself working only in cultural realms. But at the same time, as I always point out, even to my students, you know, working with the Tate or working with other clients, you you look at who's sponsoring these exhibitions and it's still BP or uh, Barclays Bank or, you know, all of these things. So it's sort of, um, I think the the very things that I would... Criticise or express a desire for with uh, criticism at large are also things that I'm constantly grappling with in my own practice in terms of the ethics Mm -hmm. and morals Mm -hmm. of how I'm working and things that I try to be uh, aware of. I mean, particularly politics right now, just given this (laughs) question we have in the UK and here in the US. Yeah. And I really and I, I've been grappling myself. I mean, it was it was a major moment for me grad thesis one class uh, I teach I'm very fortunate to teach that together with Bethany Johns It's oh, yeah. one of the first one of the first times I've actually co-taught a class ever and it's just yeah. a, It's a real joy um, with Bethany. Yeah and, uh, The night after the election when we realized what had just happened It was our grad thesis one class and oh, wow. of course we had to throw we had to throw everything we had planned out the window and just sit there collectively mentally processing what the hell had just happened. Right. And, and I think just that the discussions we had then really was, you know, it's something I'm still, I, by no means have a solution for. And I, you know, I've made a few nice looking protest posters here and there. But, you know, one thing I'm really thinking about a lot is how can we contribute on a critical level and sort of questioning ourselves as as a profession, but also what can we contribute to, especially in this kind of post-fact era as graphic designers too, how can we make things more understandable and accessible in mm-hmm. terms of here's what's really going on with the yeah. healthcare act, or here's what's really going on. And how can we, you know, we seem to have the skills to, uh, to deal with that as graphic designers and to somehow, and we have the distribution methods, Instagram, Twitter, the web. And I'm just kind of really starting to think about what can yeah. we actually really, how can we contribute and actually help clarify the mess that we're in and uh, in an accessible, uh, not speaking, speaking, not preaching to the choir, but somehow how can we really engage with the public Right, the realm. I don't know that's the sort of bit long I could go on and on but yeah these, and obviously I'm inarticulate in sort of expressing this but these are things you, clearly that I'm sort of <coughs> trying to mentally process and think about how what can we do as a profession I mean even speaking as a profession I find graphic design is so wide ranging and you know a lot of what a lot of what is graphic design are things that I, I don't really relate to in terms of what I am yeah trying to address and I speak as someone who myself recognize i need to be addressing it further as well
0: yeah no i mean i i uh i am 100 percent with you on that where i i had just started recording these uh when the election happened and and there was this you know sense where it's like wait why why should we be talking about design now this seems so uh, like a waste of time but it was actually a very clarifying moment for me also where it was like oh this actually helps me see the type of design criticism that I'm talking about that I want to see is that look I love talking about typography and color and layout and I think that that's important but we also should be talking about the impact of designed objects on the world and things like fake news and filter bubbles are all design problems in yes yeah. in a sense and that's something we should be talking about also
1: yeah I mean talking about complicity in some way you know whether we're designing yeah. UI for particular systems or yeah whether we're just simply putting more books that are cutting down trees out there. I mean, these are definitely things that, you know, definitely there's a lot of discussion. I mean, this is what's been powerful the last year at RISD. The students have really actively engaged in terms of ethics and social issues and politics and, you know, representation, <laughs> intersectionality. I mean, these, it's been great for me to just really have be confronted with, uh, you know, things that I've been trying to think about but to have students who are much more, you know, I, I am yeah. always trying to recognise I'm in a totally privileged position as you know a white male designer coming from Europe to teach at an American institution. Right. Probably the last, <laughs> the last thing any institution needs is more of me. Right. Um, right. But to have such, to become more aware and have great conversations and try to think about how can we truly try to pull this all together. Um, and definitely discussions that we're having among the faculty at RISD with the students. And I think something you're obviously doing with your podcast and that we're all I think a lot of us aim to do with you know how can graphic design again it's all coming down back to theory and practice and yeah graphic design recognizing the context in which it operates I, mean, yeah. I think that's kind of a basic summary i would say yeah i love that i mean i almost
0: kind of want to just end it right there because that's such a great kind of summary of of everything we've been talking about i do have one more question uh i'm i'm curious who are the designers the writers the critics authors that have really in influenced you in the way you think about all of these things or or the you know writers critics etc that you kind of find yourself always recommending.
1: Mm. To, to That's a really people. good question. That's a challenging question. so <laughs> um, I say this trying one for of, last. Like, just put on my reading list for example. I mean I've been getting I mean a lot of uh, I mean I must say Hans Ulrich Obrist has been putting me on to people like uh, Edouard Glissant, who's the I don't know him. Uh, Caribbean, uh, French Caribbean philosopher, okay, uh, um, whose writings are fantastic. And I've been also, I, I think, again, thanks to various exhibitions that, and mentions that um, Obrist has made uh, to Etel Adnan, who, yeah, uh, Lebanese artist and writer novelist. Um, and then, you know, this, uh, people like Hal Foster, mm-hmm. and um years ago like paul virilio and going further yeah. back reyna Bannum has always been a big influence oh yeah um designers like you know paul Allman was uh, someone who came to talk briefly at Ravensbourne, and i worked with a little bit oh yeah while i was at Ravensbourne, and he's you know continues to be an influence um yeah I'm, it could, the list could go on and on but i think it's sort of equally I mean, Keller Easterling is another one. Oh, is yeah. another writer I think is, you know, eagerly following and excited by um, the way that she sort of deals with space and urbanism and infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm always trying to talk about graphic <laughs> design. This kind of, again, graphic design and rooted in its, its context, I think. I like to talk about graphic design as being infrastructural.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: Being plugged into the city. So these are sort of all from these different areas. They're kind of, sort of, writers that I by no means uh, have fully read. I sort of really... I'm I'm constantly surrounded by stacks of books that I'm trying to read, and I'm fully aware that I'm never reading yep. everything I should be reading. And but I think that's a very fortunate position to be in. To feel like I could just keep reading until you know until the end. You know. Yep.
0: Yep. I know exactly what you mean. I was just complaining the other day how my stack of books to read is rising faster than my my stack of books read. Yeah. So I get it.
1: Yeah. This is a it's a condition. It's a fortunate condition to be in, but it's a challenging one too. Yeah.
0: Now um, now I'm using the excuse that all of this reading is for uh, Classes for preparing for lectures and things like exactly. so it, it lets me feel yeah. less guilty about spending two hours You know reading or something like that.
1: Yeah, and the thing I I mean, I fully admit to my students I'm regularly recommending readings to them urging them to read certain things that I myself have not yet read yeah around various seminal essays or writers without having actually read them but you sort of start to understand enough to know that someone else should also read them and It's also for, it's great, for you know for the students. I'll say Listen, I haven't read this. You should totally read it and then come back and tell me more about it right. So you can help, me out. you know,
0: that's great. Yeah, I love that James. Thank you so much This this was a great conversation. Like I said kind of midway through I feel like you're the the kind of epitome of the Scratching the surface guest and that you kind of have your hand in all of these different things And I know we've been trying to set this up for a while Um, and i'm so glad that we did because this was this was great and so interesting. So thank you so much for uh for talking
1: yeah no, I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. I mean, it's always a pleasure. I've been following the podcast for you know pretty much since you started, and to be a guest is a is a real honor. So thanks very much. Oh,
0: great. Yeah, thank you. This episode was recorded on September twenty second, two thousand seventeen. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.